0: want to remind us that last week, um, we talked about how the world, this is what the world says, it says that because the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, because they all had a theological agenda, okay, they had an agenda, in other words, they weren't just giving us a neutral, unbiased presentation of the facts, they had an agenda, therefore, we can't Trust their history. You can't trust someone's history if they had an agenda. And therefore, in turn, you can't trust their theology. If you can't trust their history, neither can you trust their theology. The world gets it right here. They get it wrong, but they also get it very right. Because the world sees something. They see that if the history cannot be trusted, if it's not real history, then you can't trust the theology either. See, the world gets that. You can't trust the theology if the history is not real because the world sees that your theology is rooted in your history. So the world's like, oh, let's just throw the history out and we throw the theology out. Simple. Now here's what the apostate church does. The apostate church, on the other hand, says that Hey, the gospel writers never intended their history to be real, read as real, literal history. They didn't, they didn't even intend for us to think that. What the early church was doing was creating stories. So the early church had a spiritual faith. And, and so what they did is they created stories. And there was a real Jesus But the the message, the spiritual message that Jesus had historically taught them, they then created stories around Jesus that would... Miracle stories, right? Resurrection stories, even teachings of Jesus. And those stories that the early church created, they created to embody their faith. It was like these stories gave... Um, flesh and blood to their faith. It gave substance to their faith. And therefore, by these stories, they could communicate their faith to others. How do I communicate my faith, the spiritual faith I have to other people? Well, let's create stories by which I can communicate it. And so that's what the apostate church says. Therefore, and here's the thing, uh, There aren't any historical contradictions
1: between the Gospels because it's not real history. Therefore, you can trust the theology. You see? Because it's not real history. There's no contradictions.
0: That was never the point. Therefore, trust me, you can trust the theology. You can see, if I could use the word stupid, I think that qualifies. The Bible uses the word stupid, Proverbs. It's not just foolish. It's also foolish. It's also stupid. Because in this case, what the church has done is it said to the world, um, I'll give you the high ground, world. I'm just going to cede the ground to you. The world sees what the church is blind to. The world sees that the theology is rooted in the history And that the theology, therefore, stands or falls with the history. Now, we could put it simply like this. What is theology? Theology is simply what the history in your handout
1: means. What is theology? Fancy word, but simple. It's what the history means. What does it mean? So this morning we come to ask, what does the resurrection mean?
0: We've seen over the last two weeks the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection, that the resurrection which must happen has happened in history. We've emphasized that. This morning we're going to emphasize the meaning of the fact. And we praise God that as Christians, We're not simply a people committed to facts. We're a people committed to what the facts mean. And that's what we're going to look at today as well as next week, Resurrection Easter Sunday. So I want to read, then, we'll start in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. We've looked at these, but to set the stage. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple, we know is John, they went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed that the only explanation could be a resurrection. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So we come to verse 10. So the disciples went away again to where they were staying. The question I'll ask briefly is, did John or did Peter, as they were going away, did they see Mary again? Because Mary, we know, came back to the tomb. So did they see Mary? And if they saw Mary, did they, did they tell her what they had seen? The linen wrappings there, the face cloth folded up? Maybe they did. If they did, they didn't tell Mary what they thought the explanation might be. They didn't tell Mary, you know, I can't think of any other explanation than a resurrection. We know that they didn't tell Mary that because of the things that come next. If they did see Mary, they didn't tell her that because, you know,
1: they still can't see what it means. They see the facts, but they don't know what it means. That's what we have to grasp.
0: We don't, brothers and sisters, just believe in a fact of a resurrection. We've got to know what it means, and love and rejoice in that. And so Peter and John, honestly, they probably haven't even spoken to each other about what's going on in their hearts. They just go back home. They don't know what it means. They don't know what to do with this, so they leave the tomb and go back to their respective places, wondering. But we read in verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb, crying. Many, uh, weeping is not a bad translation. I went back and forth between how I would do it here. Um, The word emphasizes the sound. So Mary was not just quietly crying. It wasn't just some inner grief that she was experiencing. She was out loud
1: crying, perhaps wailing. Mary is called the Magdalene.
0: We say Mary Magdalene, it's like it's her last name, but in the Greek, it's Mary the Magdalene, as in Mary the Moriscite, Timothy the Moriscite. This is Mary the Magdalene, because she was born and she grew up in Magdala. Magdala was a fishing and a port town, so it was a place for ships and a place for fishing. Uh, On the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. We can bring it up, the first one up. You can see there, there's the Sea of Galilee there. Magdala is on the west shore on the left there. Halfway between Capernaum to the north, Tiberias to the south. So there was a main road that traveled from Tiberias to Capernaum through Magdala. And Magdala was not only, uh, uh, as I said, a, a, a place via land where a road travels, but it was a port town for ships and a major fishing. Uh, um, city. And in fact, it's very interesting. You can read about how they've discovered even artificial aquariums that they had built in Magdala. You can see the remains of those with um, channels for the water, for, for their fishing industry. Um, let's just go to the next slide as well. So here's a picture of, of Magdala. This is where Mary was from, this very location. And you can see throughout some of the ruins that the archaeologists have been uncovering from the time of Jesus. So this is where she walked, this is where she lived, this is where she was born. Um, Recent excavations of this site have uncovered two synagogues, some of the oldest synagogues in the world, the seven oldest, dating from the time of Jesus. So we can see here again the next slide. And we can't see it the best here, uh, um, but it's really, really neat. If you, if you want to look it up at home sometime, you can see some of the details. You see the mosaic on the floor of the synagogue over there to the right, the steps leading down into the center of the synagogue, the remains of a pillar that would have been there. And they, all, they just discovered this in the last 15 years. Um, just one foot below the surface of the ground. This is stuff that Mary would have known that she would have walked around, and certainly Jesus as well. We come to the next picture. There's one more picture just to look at. i got to get my perspective here. Again, you see the mosaic floor, and, and some of the, there's called the Magdala stone, a very interesting thing they found in the synagogue when they, when they unburied it, unearthed it. So the Gospels never specifically tell us Jesus went to Magdala. But given how important Magdala was in Jesus' day, and especially given what Matthew and Mark tell us, it is certain Jesus stood in that synagogue. It is certain that he ministered in this city, that he would have taught in this very synagogue, and that he met Mary of Magdala here in this city. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. This is a synagogue in Galilee. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Then we read in Mark. Mark says, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go elsewhere to the towns nearby, you can insert Magdala, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee And casting out the demons. What do we know about Mary of Magdala? It was almost certainly when Jesus came to Magdala that he met Mary, from whom we know he cast out seven demons. So Luke Luke tells us that as Jesus was going around from one city and village to another, in chapter 8, the twelve were with him. We always picture Jesus accompanied by the 12, right? But in fact, there were more than the 12 with him. And we, we, if we think about it, most of us may remember that there were women with that group. So the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, the Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's manager, and Susanna, and many others who are ministering to them from their possessions. So, whether there's actually seven demons, and you can count them as seven, or whether this is just a way of saying a lot of demons, a symbolic reference to a lot, the main point is neither here nor there. The point is this. The
1: misery and the wretchedness Of Mary's condition. That's what we're supposed to grasp. And immediately I think. We can have a sense of
0: understanding. Though we've not probably experienced the level of misery and wretchedness. That she experienced. And it's from out of this misery and this wretchedness. That Jesus saves her. The result then for Mary is that she leaves her hometown of Magdala, just like we see the other disciples doing, the Twelve, and she leaves there to follow Jesus and to support his ministry from her own private means. She, She obviously had private means, or she really probably couldn't have done that. And in fact, not only did she have enough means to support herself, but she was supporting the ministry of Jesus. Luke tells us Mary was with Jesus in Galilee as he's going around. So Mary's following Jesus from city to city, from one village to another, as he's preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Mark describes it like this. He says that when Jesus was in Galilee, Mary Magdalene, along with some other women, used to follow Jesus and minister to him. We might imagine preparing meals, perhaps mending the clothes, we don't know, but in some way, they, they, these were needs that would have had to be met. When Jesus left Galilee, so you know he had gone back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem a number of times, but when he leaves Galilee for the last time to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then comes the crucifixion, there were some women who went up with him from Galilee, among whom was Mary from Magdala. She was there. She followed him to Jerusalem. She was there when Jesus was crucified. So Matthew writes And many women were there at the cross, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mary was still there when Joseph. And Nicodemus took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Matthew says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the grave. You see Mary Magdalene everywhere that Jesus is.
1: Finally, we know that Mary was at the tomb again, early on the first day of the week.
0: If you put all four of the Gospels together, Mary is mentioned nine times. She's mentioned more than that, but she's mentioned nine times in company with other women. And eight of those times she's mentioned first. So it's kind of like just a habit of the gospel writers. If you're mentioning the women by name, Mary Magdalene comes first. She comes first.
1: Why is she always first in the list? Most likely, for some reason,
0: she was the recognized leader of this group of ministering women who followed Jesus, ministering to his practical needs, to the, to the needs of the whole group and band because there are necessities of life, eating and, and you know, drinking and the things that have to be taken care of. They, they followed Jesus caring for these things. Maybe she was the recognized leader. Was she first among the women? Because she was also first in the fervency of her love for and devotion to Jesus. That's not to put down the other women. It's simply to recognize that she was cured of the possession by seven demons. The point is, what an utterly miserable, wretched state Jesus had saved her out of. And so the result seems to be a fervency of love and devotion to Jesus, that superseded and surpassed, at least outwardly speaking, all others. Ever since the day when Jesus came to Mary's hometown of Magdala, and he delivered her from that, that misery and that wretchedness, Mary has gone with Jesus wherever he has gone. And now, at the end, at the apparent end of
1: everything, we see her standing outside Jesus' tomb crying. Now I I, I want us to remember that the point of these things is is never ultimately a feel-good story. I'm not saying it doesn't feel good. It does. But it feels good in ways that we may not
0: anticipate as is seen from the fact that we love when Jesus comes to Mary and he says, Mary,
1: we love that. We don't like it when Jesus says, stop clinging to me. I would like to challenge us again that we not
0: come to the scriptures with our, with our self-centered desires to feel good. We need to be able to embrace the stop clinging to me along with the Mary. And that means we need to come to a right understanding
1: of this passage. Why is Mary crying? You say, well, it's obvious. We already know now. But, but remember,
0: earlier when Mary came to Peter and John, what did she say to them? They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. That's got her worked up. Mary is crying, not just because Jesus is dead, although certainly that's at the, at the root of everything, but because now even her last remaining connection with Jesus is taken away. When I mean, she knew Jesus is dead, he, he died on Friday, but she went Sunday morning to the tomb, hoping to find his body and, and, and care for his body in a way that was culturally appropriate. Now she doesn't even have that connection. That last
1: connection is gone. So as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb.
0: And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying.
1: And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? It's interesting, the angels, I mean, what? If I'm the angels, what do I want to tell Mary right now? He's risen, Mary. He's risen, good news. The angels told that to the other women. They do not tell Mary of Magdala. Instead, they ask Mary a question. Woman,
0: why are you crying? We'll come back to a woman in a minute, right? We should know by now. We should know some stuff about that. But we'll come back to that. Certainly, in the angels' question, should we hear, you know, should we hear the angels being rude?
1: No. Should we hear them being impatient? No. There's a tenderness in their question. There's a tenderness. But we
0: also have to remember this: the angels are not, you know, like a, a parent might ask if they see their child crying. Oh, oh, why are you why are you crying? That's not what the angels are doing here. They're not trying to learn the answer so they can comfort Mary. The implication of their words, woman, why are you crying? Is that they know already why Mary is crying and they can't understand it.
1: In other words, she ought not to be crying. The implication of the words is even that she ought to know that she ought not
0: to be crying. Now remember, the angels are not being rude or mean or impatient. But there is a level of reproof in their words, of gentle, joyful reproof. We'll see that as we go on. If Mary did meet John and Peter on her way back to the tomb, then she may already know about the linen wrappings that are lying there right where his body was, but they're not torn, they're not, uh, they're not in disarray, they're just right there where his body was, only there's no body in them anymore. And Peter saw that and he believed. He said, what other explanation can there be for this? Certainly not grave robbers. Right? So Mary may know about this. And here's more importantly the question, what does it mean? And I ask you this, what does
1: it mean? When you look into a tomb and you see angels. You see two angels sitting, not just, not just angels, but
0: sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. As one commentator puts it, I think he puts it so well here, this is a powerful, this is unmistakable evidence that God himself has been at work. That this is nothing other than the invasion of God's power into this world that we live in and experience on a daily basis.
1: Indeed, we might, ask, we might ask Mary at this point, Mary, gently, how can there be two angels sitting in the tomb and yet the body of Jesus be stolen by enemies? How can that be? In the question the angels put to Mary, we do hear a
0: very gentle, and I would even say a very joyful,
1: a joyful reproof. Can you put those things together? The question is, the important word is
0: this in your handout. The, 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 the word of the hour is this.
1: Why do you not see that Jesus is risen? Why do you not see? Why are you crying? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. And of course, she takes their question
0: almost perhaps as a child would take it from a parent, saying, oh, why are you crying? Let me comfort you if I can. This seems to be how Mary hears it, essentially, though later on she would have looked back and seen it differently. And so she answers because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Why does Mary not understand? Why can't she see? Can you see the reason? And and we're not necessarily picking on Mary, just like we don't pick on the other disciples when they end up being the ones to teach us a lesson, right? Mary Mary is representing what's happening in a lot of people at this point. Why can't she see? And the reason is this, and we'll see this as we go along, because to Mary, Jesus was still only a man. Even if he was her deliverer, even if he was her Lord, to whom she was passionately devoted, she still only knew him as a man. Her love for Jesus, as wholehearted and as devoted as it was, and this is, I think, sometimes if we, if, if we, if we, uh, I, I can't, I want to say humanize Jesus because he is a human, fully. <laughs> We're going to see there's, there's something we've got to deal with here. If we overly humanize Jesus, if we bring him down to only the human level, at, at, and it, we, we end up loving a Jesus who isn't really existent. Now, Mary had some reason for this, and, and she wasn't off base. She knew Jesus before the resurrection. This is the Jesus she knows. She had not, she had not um, transcended this earthly human level. She had never been able to transcend that, and there was a reason for that. So now they had the rest of the disciples. And so her love was a love that remained at the human level. It was a love still defined by earthly, this-worldly realities, and she could not conceive of Jesus in any other way, despite two angels sitting in an empty tomb where the body of Jesus had been and was no longer, where there were linen garments, wrappings still laying undisturbed and the face cloth folded up in a place by itself. The angels have called Mary. They are calling Mary. Mary, why are you weeping? They're calling Mary. They're even exhorting Mary to see there's no reason for her to be crying. But she still clings. What hope does she cling to still?
1: The hope of finding the body of Jesus. The old Jesus. The Jesus that she knew. She still cannot transcend the nature of her previous attachment to Jesus. Neither can most. At least at that time, the angel said to her, Woman, why
0: are you crying? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she
1: turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. As we'll see in a moment, Mary's not the only one who didn't... Again, I think in our culture, anytime you pick on a woman, you're going to get in trouble. We're not picking on a woman. Neither do we pick on a man. But what we're seeing is that Mary here is showing us
0: that the problem, and especially in this story where we just love Mary and where she's weeping, we love when she's comforted and it's so beautiful. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that that Mary has a problem. And the problem is not a moral one. It's not like she's a sinner, great sinner. But she does have a problem that needs to be now
1: corrected. And and the angels and Jesus are working to correct this. And they're doing this because
0: Jesus does this because of his great love for Mary, as we will see. How could Mary, I ask you, how could Mary not know it was Jesus? We talked about this briefly in Sunday school this morning. We might ask, if you read this, you might think, well, maybe she was psychologically blinded.
1: To the obvious, like, there's Jesus, Mary. It's like, there he is. H- how do you not know it's him?
0: Well, maybe you're psychologically blinded because you're so convinced he's dead, it can't be him. But that, first of all, this un- just seems unlikely. But second of all, she would have at least recognized him and assumed she was seeing a spirit. If you see Jesus and you, don't, and you believe he's dead, what do you believe you're seeing? His spirit, that's what they believed back in those days. If you're seeing his ghost. That's what the disciples thought when they saw Jesus coming to them on the water. So that's unconvincing. The other thought is, well, maybe she was physically blinded by her tears. Maybe her tears were so blurring her eyes, she couldn't really
1: see him, which is also unconvincing. Through our tears, we recognize a person with whom we are intimately familiar.
0: And also, John says she saw Jesus standing
1: there and did not know it was Jesus. John's point seems to be, yes, she saw him, but she didn't know it was him. How can she not know? This is what's so important,
0: and this is why John emphasizes that. She didn't know it was him. On the one hand, there's an essential continuity between the body they put in the tomb and the body of this Jesus standing in front of Mary right now. It's the same body. And isn't that, after all, the whole point of the empty tomb? Why does, it matter the em- Why does it matter the tomb is empty? Because Jesus is raised. His body is not there. He is alive. That's the point. the same. The same body laid in the tomb has been raised up. So Jesus can say to the disciples in Luke 24, see my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself.
1: Now, once we get that, then we've got to mess with it. Because on the other hand, and this is so
0: important, there is also a fundamental dis, 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 discontinuity between the body put in the tomb on Friday and the body of the resurrected Jesus standing there in front of Mary. What's different? Well, at one level, we cannot conceive. But let's talk about it. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus in the days of his flesh, he says, Jesus, in the days of his flesh. He's not saying that once Jesus was resurrected, he didn't have flesh. He does have flesh. He has flesh and bones. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus in the days of his flesh, before he was resurrected, he's using flesh in the sense of fleshly weakness, corruptibility, mortality, the weakness of flesh that
1: can die. But Jesus stands in front of Mary now and he is no longer in the days of his flesh.
0: He's been raised up in a body no longer susceptible to death. And we're like, we're a little over, we can be overly simplistic about that because we can have this idea that, oh, well, it's just this body that can't die. Well, no. <laughs> what, is, what is a body that can't die that's not susceptible to death? Here is a mystery. Because before Adam and Eve ever sinned in the garden, their bodies were bodies that of their very nature were susceptible to death. Before they ever sinned in the garden, from the moment Adam and Eve came from the hand of God, they were susceptible of death. In their very nature, their bodies. So when we talk about the resurrection body of Jesus, which is no longer even susceptible to the reality of death. We have to see that this is something wholly new in the history of the world since the creation of Adam and Eve. Never before has such a thing such a thing existed. The resurrection body of Jesus is something hitherto unknown and even now incomprehensible. You cannot conceive of the resurrection body of Jesus, we cannot conceive
1: of a body not susceptible to death. Because it has never existed, ever. And it only exists now in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of a new creation. So the Apostle Paul speaks of our own future
0: resurrection bodies as patterned after the resurrection body of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, it is sown a corruptible body. It is raised an incorruptible body. And this is a mystery, brothers and sisters. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body.
1: The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So
0: we are the earthy now. One day we'll be the heavenly. So also are those who are earthy, as is the heavenly. So also are those who are heavenly.
1: So let's put this tension together. Alongside the fundamental
0: continuity and sameness between the body of Jesus put in the tomb and the body of Jesus standing in front of Mary. There is also a fundamental, and let me just say, an immeasurably far-reaching unsameness. Discontinuity between the body of Jesus put in the tomb and the body of the Jesus standing now before Mary. We can see some of the results of this mystery, even if we can't comprehend it, we see some of the results. Jesus can pass through grave clothes in which he is wrapped, leaving them undisturbed. And again, as I said in Sunday school, the point here is not to think, wow, that's cool, like as in a science fiction kind of a thing. No, this is just the mystery of the new creation
1: resurrection body that flesh and bone, which is what Jesus is, passes through grave clothes. Jesus says, touch me and see, I'm not a spirit. I have flesh and bone.
0: The angel, we need to remember, You know, the angel didn't remove the stone from the entrance of the tomb to let Jesus out. He didn't move the stone away
1: so that Jesus could get out of the tomb in which he was trapped. Why did the angel move the stone away? So we could get in. That's why. How did Jesus pass out of the tomb? Flesh and blood. Flesh and bone, in a manner inconceivable to us. When Jesus
0: left the two disciples whom he had joined on the road to Emmaus, how did he leave them? Did he walk away? No, he just vanished from their sight. How does flesh and bone just vanish from your sight? Later, Jesus will come and stand in the midst of the disciples while the doors are shut. Apparently, though, another result of this redemptive historical newness of the body Resurrection body of Jesus is that even those who were closest to him in the days of his flesh do not immediately recognize him when they see him. Luke chapter 24. It happened that while the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were conversing and debating, Jesus himself approached and was going with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, I just want us to ask, why didn't they recognize him? I think the answer is this. They're still in the days of their flesh. And, in the, and being in the flesh, how do they see and interpret everything around them? In fleshly categories. But there's some mystery here.
1: Because Jesus is no longer with them in the days of their flesh. He's not there with them anymore. He's living, even as he walks physically with them, he is
0: in some mysterious way living in, an, in a realm in which they do not exist. He was at one time, as respected his body, from the earth. Now, he is not from the earth. He is from heaven. He is heavenly. He was earthly. He is essentially heavenly now. How then, the question is, how then can those who are still from the earth
1: recognize the one who is from heaven? The answer is apparently only through a work of God's sovereign grace. Sometimes
0: we wish that Jesus would have just shown up to the Pharisees, right? Here I am. Well, if we've learned anything from Mary and from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what would the Pharisees have done? They'd say, and who are you? They're still in the flesh. Jesus is in the heavenly realm. God now must open our eyes because, brothers and sisters, the issue is not simply recognizing the historical fact that that body in the tomb is this body here. The issue is recognizing what does this mean? That's what Mary has not understood. And until she understands what it
1: means, she cannot fully recognize Jesus. We read again and then in Luke, and it happened that
0: when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And after breaking it, he was giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, we know that when Jesus returns, all eyes will see him and they will all acknowledge him as Lord, right? Again, that'll have to be a work of God. So that they recognize this is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, there's, there's mystery involved. Now the question again, let me ask, and see if you can put the answer to it. How can Mary
1: see Jesus standing there and not know it's Jesus? That goes to the problem. This is not simply a matter of tears. It's not simply a, a,
0: a matter of of, of sympathy for psychological blindness
1: due to grief. There's another reason. It's because she's thinking of Jesus in the old earthly categories. It's because all the rest of the disciples were too, all the rest of the women.
0: This isn't just an issue of recognizing it's Jesus Because we would like to say, why do you have to go through all this rigmarole, right? Why, Why can't you just say right there in the beginning, there's Jesus, he's risen, there's Jesus. No, no, because
1: that's not what it's about. It's not like, oh, there's Jesus. It's about, there's Jesus, but he's not the same. There's the Jesus you have never known before. Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Again, these are not just beautiful questions
0: leading up to some grand revelation. That's not just all they are. Jesus is probing. Jesus is inviting Mary to ask herself these questions. We've already seen in chapter 2 and chapter 19 that woman was not a disrespectful or demeaning form of address. It could be very tender. But it would not have been the usual way of addressing someone with whom you're intimately familiar. Would Jesus typically have addressed Mary as woman in the days of his flesh? Almost certainly not. But now when he comes to Mary as her risen Lord, he
1: addresses her not initially as Mary by her name, but as woman. What's going on here? What is going on?
0: We need to remember that Jesus has come, In in case we get too upset here, Jesus has come especially to Mary. The point is not that he doesn't love her. He's come especially to her. He has come first
1: to Mary. And now it's because of his deep love for Mary that he addresses her tenderly as woman, not as Mary. He's still, he's still inviting her.
0: He's not going to give it away. He's not going to call her Mary and just give it away because the point is not, hey Mary, I'm Jesus, right? Yeah, I'm back. No, that's not the point. So he does not give it away. He does not call her Mary yet because she still needs to come along.
1: He's still inviting her. He's still gently Reproving her. She must learn now to love Jesus. Not simply as a man, no
0: matter how good, no matter how wonderful he was in her mind. She must learn to
1: love him as the risen and exalted son of God.
0: She must learn to love Jesus, not simply as the one who delivered her from seven demons in Magdala, but as the one who has made a full atonement for all her sins and who gives to her the eternal life of the age to come. It's only in that way that Mary's joy can be made full, because if Mary can't surpass the joy she's going to have in a moment at seeing Jesus, Jesus is back, right? If she can't surpass that joy, she'll never have the true joy. So Jesus repeats the angel's question. First, he addresses her as woman, not as Mary. Then he repeats the angel's question for
1: a reason. Why are you crying? The key then to Mary's joy is not simply recognizing that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive.
0: That's a fact. That's history. It's not what it means. The key to Mary's joy is that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive and can never die again, because through his death, he has defeated death once for all and even inaugurated in his own person, in his own resurrected person, a new creation.
1: That's what she needs to see. When she sees Jesus, she needs to see new creation. Why do you not see that it is I? Why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Do you see now the meaning of that question? Who is Mary seeking?
0: Mary is seeking, as it were, an earthly Jesus. She's seeking Jesus in the days of his flesh. Which is why Mary does not recognize Jesus standing there in front of her. Which is why Mary still doesn't recognize the voice of Jesus when he addresses her as woman. And the key, therefore, to Mary's joy and, brothers and sisters, to our joy
1: is that we learn to seek not an earthly Jesus in the days of his flesh, Jesus, but the heavenly Jesus and to seek after him always by faith. Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking?
0: Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away,
1: tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary grasps now at a new hope. Maybe, she thinks, the body of
0: Jesus has been carried away by, not enemies, but maybe the gardener was under orders to remove his body to a new location, to place it somewhere else. So she says, if you've taken it away, then tell me and I'll go, I'll go take care of
1: it. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. We know that Mary was already turning away from Jesus because in the next verse,
0: we'll see that she turns back to him now. So you can picture it very vividly. Mary is is turning away. She said what she has to say to the gardener. She doesn't see much hope there. She's turning away, and the gardener
1: calls to her. Jesus calls her and says, Mary, Mary. Jesus still knows. He knows her by name. He still calls her by name. Just as he knows and calls every single one of us, of all his sheep,
0: by name. The point was not he didn't know her by name and wouldn't call her by name. John 10 says that he knows and calls all of his sheep by name. That was
1: never the point. Jesus loves Mary just as he loved her before. And so the lesson Mary
0: must learn is not that there's now this distant formality between her and Jesus. That's not the lesson. The lesson she must learn is the good news. Is that the good news of the resurrection is not simply that the earthly Jesus is
1: alive again but he's alive again with a fundamentally different kind of life. That's what it means. That's the good news.
0: He's alive forevermore as Mary's own redeemer, as her priest, as her king, so that through faith in him, Mary, Mary can now be herself a new creation. That's what it means. We'll look at that more next week. Mary must therefore learn to recognize Jesus in this new and wonderful way. You see, again, why doesn't Jesus just tell her it's him? Because Jesus wants to bring her to recognize him in this new and wonderful way.
1: Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teach her. And
0: we know from the next verse that Mary was immediately clinging to Jesus. And again, if we look at the history of Mary, we understand why. We look at what happened in Magdala. We look at her whole life since then, following Jesus, caring for his needs, devoted to him, following him to the end, there at the tomb on resurrection Sunday morning, not knowing. So we understand why she's clinging to Jesus. But
1: she still clings to Jesus, only as she had known him before. There he is. He's back, she says. Her heart rejoices. She clings to him. But only as she knew him before. She addresses him still as Rabboni, teacher, the old way. She does not want the Jesus she knew before to be taken away from her ever again. But there's good news for Mary. It's better. It's better than what she wishes. What
0: Mary still does not see is that the Jesus who stands before her now is not just the same Jesus she knew before. So what does Mary believe now? Mary believes the fact of the resurrection. History.
1: And that has personally brought her joy. But she still does not understand what it means. Therefore, she has not yet entered into the true joy in your handout. Perhaps now then we can hear the love and even the joy in these words
0: of gentle reproof. Now these words don't come out of nowhere. Now it's not like all of us we had all this beautiful feel-good moment, and then all of a sudden, this. No, now we see that this flows naturally out of all that's come before. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He might have been saying this with a smile on his face. I don't know. But, but the point is not. The point is the words. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Here's the culmination of this whole wonderful passage. You see, what is Jesus saying to Mary? On the one hand, he's saying, Mary, I'm, I'm not going away completely yet. right? I've not yet ascended permanently to the Father. On the other hand, if he's not yet, that tells you he is. And so if Jesus is going to ascend to the Father, then what does that mean about Mary's clinging? If Jesus is going to ascend to the Father, then what does that mean about her clinging? It means that her clinging to Jesus is not only futile, it cannot achieve what she wishes it to achieve, but it is also wholly misguided and out of place. Mary's clinging to Jesus in her joy is the very thing still robbing her of the true joy. The true joy. Because she wants to keep Jesus here forever. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples only three days earlier. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you.
1: If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I go to the Father. For
0: the Father is greater than I. So when I want to ask you then this question. What does the resurrection mean? The resurrection means Jesus is going away. We like to think, hey, if, if, if a loved one was raised from the dead, the resurrection means he's back with me. He's with me. And he going to stay here, right? No, no. In Jesus' case, the resurrection actually means he's going. He's going away to the Father. The resurrection in John is the continuation of Jesus' ascension. When did the ascension begin? When Jesus was lifted up on the cross. The ascension began when Jesus was lifted up on the cross. It will be completed when he is taken up into heaven. The resurrection is the continuation
1: then of this going away. To the Father. Mary though. Clings. To the old Jesus. Jesus in the days of his flesh.
0: What she needs to learn now. And what we know she did. Learn to her great. Unending everlasting joy.
1: She needs to learn the joy of clinging. Clinging. By faith to the Jesus who is going away. And not just going away anywhere, but ascending to the Father. As our advocate who loves us, our representative who calls each of us by name, as our king
0: and high priest, As the one who gives to us the Holy Spirit,
1: even the Spirit of Christ, so that he now dwells within us. And as the one who is coming again.
0: We see Mary clinging, we see her clinging to the Jesus she knew in the days of his flesh. What she needs to learn now is the joy of clinging by faith to the Jesus who by his resurrection has ushered in a new creation. That's why Jesus says to Mary, not just for the disciples' sake, he doesn't just say this for the disciples' sake, he says it for Mary's sake too. He says to Mary, go, stop clinging to me and go now to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my
1: father and your father and my God and your God. What does the resurrection mean? in your handout, it means that as we are now united with the
0: resurrected Jesus by faith, here is a mystery. We believe in Jesus, in his resurrection, we are now united with him by faith, and so now we share with him in all the exalted privileges of his sonship. He says, my father and your father. He's distinguishing, but he's also drawing us into the relationship he has with his father. He says, my God and your God. It means that we can address God now as Abba Father. What does the resurrection mean? It means we, we, we call God Abba Father. It means that we are now heirs with Jesus of all things. That's our privileged right and possession as sons and daughters of God. It means that as we are united with the resurrected Jesus by faith, we have become
1: a new creation. Which I believe is what we're going to talk about next week. Here then is the glorious theology which not only
0: grows out of the historical fact of the resurrection, but shows us the absolute necessity of that resurrection. You see this? Where do, I get, where, where do we get all this new creation talk? This, this beautiful theology of an advocate, of a representative, of a priest, of, 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 a, of a spirit that is sent to indwell us. It all arises, brothers and sisters, from a historical
1: fact 2,000 years ago of an empty tomb. And in fact, not only does it arise from that, but when our eyes are open to see these truths, it necessitates the resurrection. So, in your handout, in the final analysis, I'll ask you, why do you believe in the
0: resurrection? Why? Well, the answer is, in the end, is because your eyes have been opened by God's sovereign grace, not because you're smarter or better than anyone else, but because by God's sovereign grace, he has opened your eyes to see what
1: the resurrection means. And because we believe, our joy then is made full. I believe and I don't know
0: if this is in your handout, I think I had perhaps, maybe if it is, but no, scratch perhaps. I believe we can see the beginnings of this same belief and this same joy in Mary. Because Mary didn't go away, she didn't go away suddenly subdued, and oh boy, I guess I can't be as happy as I thought I was. No, no. Mary went away just as joyful as ever, and I think her mind, her eyes beginning to be opened through all that's just happened, through the woman, through the angels asking the question, through Jesus saying, whom are you seeking? To him saying, stop clinging to me. All of that has served to begin to open her eyes by God's sovereign grace in Mary's heart and, and mind to what the resurrection means. Not just that it happened, but to what it means now for her. I believe we see this belief and this joy awakening in Mary when we read in verse 18. Mary
1: Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So brothers and sisters, do you believe in the resurrection? It's not just a feel-good moment, though it does feel good. It's more than that. Do you believe in it? Do you believe that as a historical fact, it
0: happened, the tomb which once contained the body of Jesus, is now empty? Not because it was
1: stolen away, not because he swooned and came back to life, but because he was dead and now he lives. Do you believe that? That's not enough. Do you believe and rejoice in what it means? Are you now, through faith in him, a new creation? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help our eyes
0: to be opened, even as Mary's eyes were being opened in this passage. Lord, help us not to cling to any Jesus made in our own image, to, any, to, to Jesus as it were in the days of his flesh, but to cling to the Jesus who is now our risen Lord and Son of God, exalted to your right hand, who has accomplished fully our redemption. We thank you that the historical Jesus who lived and walked and taught, even in in the ruins that we saw on the the picture and the screen, that 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 Jesus has been raised and and now
1: sits at the right hand of the invisible and eternal God. And that he indeed will one day come and, and conform our bodies to be made like unto his
0: glorious body. And that we will be the new
1: creation that we already are, will be consummated in the redemption of our bodies. Lord, I pray that we would learn to cling to Jesus, even as we saw Mary clinging. But she just
0: needed to learn a different kind of clinging a different meaning to her
1: clinging. We thank you that now we cling to the Jesus who has gone away and that we rejoice he's gone away and that we rejoice he's coming. We also thank you, O Lord, for the ways that you deal with each one of us. As we see the, the
0: beautiful, wonderful, patient, perfectly wise way that you
1: dealt and and worked in Mary's life in this moment. We thank you that you are faithful to work in us, to correct our, our faulty thinking, to bring us to the place where we're not, where we need to be, to reprove us and rebuke us for our sin. And show us always the true path of righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would ever be receptive to your gentle reproofs. Knowing that you love us. And always and forever, unceasingly, call us by name. We pray these things and Lord, I pray for, for any here who have not yet believed. Believed with
0: saving faith and not in the fact, and in what the fact means.
1: Lord, may you by your Spirit open their eyes today to see in Jesus their their all-sufficient Savior. For us who have perhaps long confessed Christ, but maybe at times forgotten what it is to confess him as our all-sufficient Savior, work that in us again. so that we might live from the overflow of that knowledge every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.